Open your Bibles up to Romans 11. Last week we were, we've been talking about end time studies and in particular we have, we were looking at the restoration of the church and the restoration of the, of the gospel of the kingdom. And then we began to look last week at the, at the restoration of the covenants that God made to Israel. Because if we understand the flow of the Old Testament, covenants that God made, it helps us to understand some of the current events that are taking place. So last week we were talking about Romans chapter 11, in which the question is raised by Paul in verse 1, where he says, "Has I say then, has God cast away his people? God forbid, he says, I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Know you not what the scriptures say of Elijah, how that he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they are seeking my life. And of course, God's answer to him was, I have reserved to myself a remnant, 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul says, even at this present time, there is a remnant that is chosen unto salvation. If you look at Romans chapter 11 over in the verse 25th verse, it is a mystery. The Bible contains certain mysteries in which they are not completely fulfilled. And this restoration and salvation of the nation of Israel is one of those mysteries. Verse 25, I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. That blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There is a time which is currently upon us in which God is dealing with the Gentiles. We are Gentiles. We're not Jews. He is pouring out the gospel upon the Gentile world. But there comes a point that he says there is the fullness of the Gentiles. There comes a point where God says in his eternal plan, that's it, I'm done. And now I'm going to focus all of my attention back upon the nation of Israel and bring all things to pass. And I believe that is very, very close upon us. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, there will come forth out of Zion, the deliverer, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And then this is what we were focusing upon, verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them when I will take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gift and the calling of God are without repentance. When God makes a covenant, and makes a promise, he does not go back on it. That's what he's saying. And you notice that when he says all of this is because of the promises that he made to the fathers, it's a plural fathers, he's talking about the covenants that he made with the Old Testament fathers, in particular Abraham and Moses and David. So that's what we were starting upon. Now if you look at Real quickly at the book of Genesis, chapter um, 15. I'm not going to go back and reteach last week's message. It should be on tape. But we divided up. We talked about the three 
major promises or covenants. A covenant is a promise. The three major promises that God made to Abraham, to Moses, and David. And we started into that and we talked about the promises made to Abraham. In Genesis 15, just reading one quick section, we, we spent the whole hour talking about this promise that he made to Abraham of an innumerable seed that would be a nation that would occupy a land and would have it forever. That is the nation of Israel and that is the land of uh, Palestine. That is the land of Israel today, only not it will be a much larger area than what it currently has, but God promised it forever. And of course the Palestinian position is well, we're Abraham's seed too. But we went on to show you how that they are of the seed of Ishmael and Israel is of the seed of Isaac and Isaac is the child of promise. Ishmael, the Bible says, is the seed of the flesh in the book of Galatians. But when God was reaffirming his covenant to Abraham and he did this several times, in Genesis 15, just one, one place where he's reaffirming it, he brought Abraham out and he said to him in verse 5, he brought him forth abroad and he said, Genesis 15:5, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars and if you're able to number them. And he said, So will thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. That is the land of Israel today. Only the Israel only has a small portion of what was promised. And he said, well, Lord, how will I know that I will inherit it? And then he laid out some animals, and, and God walked between those animal sacrifices, showing that he was the mediator between, there would be a mediator that would be between God and man. And, of course, we know that's Christ. And then he says in verse 13, he said to Abram, Know the surety that thy seed will be a stranger that is in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them there, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve, I will judge, and afterwards they will come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they will come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And then he went on to say in verse 18, The same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, Amorites, he mentions all these tribes. And of course we showed you it was an everlasting promise, an everlasting covenant. And the Jews are holding to that today. Now what happened from this point on? What happened from here? And where did the other covenants, because remember this is one father, this is Abraham, but what about the other fathers that are mentioned about Romans 11? Now we talked about Isaac last time and Jacob. But there were others. If you turn with me now to the book of uh, Numbers. And let's look at Numbers chapter 13. What I'm going to do this morning is just give you a kind of a quick, brief, historical lesson on the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. And I'll try to make it brief so it doesn't get long and boring, but I'd like you to, to see some of the major key bits and pieces that are here to get a flow of the Bible. Because if you understand that flow of what's happening in the Old Testament, it'll bring you up to par as to what's happening 
today, or at least in the 20th century. Because a lot of promises were made. A lot of promises were spoken. Some were fulfilled and some were not. And it raises questions that basically were answered in 1948 when Israel became a sovereign nation. If we were to summarize up some of the things that were in the Old Testament and try to understand the covenant that God made primarily to Moses and to David, especially the Davidic covenant. We don't hear a lot about the Davidic covenant. The Mosaic covenant we've heard much about. But let's do just a quick history lesson this morning and talk about these covenants. First of all, in Numbers chapter 13, we know that what occurred in fulfillment to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15 was that the children of Israel, in the time period of Jacob, they went into a famine. God, of course, was working in advance by putting Joseph in the land of Egypt. And during that famine, they went into the land of Egypt. And while they were there, then uh, they came under, after another pharaoh came in, they came in under oppression of the Egyptians, and God delivered them through Moses. And he brought them out into the wilderness. And into the wilderness, he began to reaffirm to them that the promises that were made to Abraham were theirs. And that God said to them, you are going to inherit the land. And God said, 400 years, you're going to be in that land. You're going to be in Egypt. Because he said, then I'll bring them out and I'm going to punish the nations that will occupy the land of Canaan. God waited 400 years. He did that for a variety of reasons. One of which he said, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What God does in the Bible is that if a nation is wicked, it doesn't mean that he just immediately goes in and starts pounding and judging and pouring on his wrath upon that nation. He allows that nation to remain sinful and they are like a crop of wheat. They come to the fullness and the harvest and God judges them. That's why we have nations in the world today that are very wicked and tyrannical. But we're looking at a small little piece of nations that um, maybe in our lifetime only only that wickedness only maybe is in existence for 50 years. But God a lot of times will, in his long suffering, let those nations continue in their sinful ways. And after a few hundred years or more, then he will judge them and destroy them. There have been a lot of nations that have come and gone. If you think about it, over the last several, over the last few thousand years, Israel is still going. But a lot of nations, historically, have come and gone. They no longer exist. Uh, the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, and so forth, some of them are great powers. The Roman Empire is gone. Greeks are still here, but they're a, the, the Greeks are really a, a nothing power compared to what they were under Alexander the Great. And even Egypt, one of the greatest powers of the world, is really not much farther away from a third world country today. But Israel is still a nation that is in existence, and even though they're small, they're very mighty. But anyways, God delivered them through the hand of Moses into the wilderness. And into the wilderness, shortly after they got in there, Moses said to them, okay, look, the land is before us. And God said, you take one of every tribe, send them into the land, have them come back with a report. This is number 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel, of every tribe of their father, 
shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them? And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran, and all the men's heads were the children of Israel. One of each of the tribes went forth. They sent him into the land of Canaan. They came back, and they, uh, he wanted to report. He said in verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said unto them, Go southward and up into the mountains and see the land, what it is, the people that dwell therein, whether they're strong, weak, few, many, whether the land is good or bad, and so forth, what kind of crops, what kind of housing, etc. They came back, and in verse 25, they returned from searching the land after 40 days. And in verse 26, they went, came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of children of Israel, and they brought them back word and said unto them the congregation, showed them the congregation of the fruit of the land. They said, We have come into the land whether you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. And they took two men to carry the grapes. They were so great. Nevertheless, the people are strong, and they dwell in the land. The cities are walled, very great. And we saw the children of Anak. The children of Anak would be like Goliath. They were giants. They were uh, distorted human beings from women cohabiting with demonic beings. And so there was, they were freaks, is what they were. And then, so you had giants. And, and, and if you go into, in, I don't want to get into proving all that this morning, but uh, that's spoken of in different places where fallen angels, it appears like it was fallen angels, not demons, there is a difference, came down and cohabited with women. And the children of Anak, they were giants, they were freaks, they were half uh, angelic and half actually demonic because they were fallen angels, but anyway, they were freaks. Nevertheless, the people, he says, they, the children of Anak were there, the Amicalites dwell in the south, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and the coast of Jordan, and they're just doing nothing but bringing forth a lot of excuses saying, yeah, it's a great land, but there's no way we're going to get it. Caleb stilled the people. He didn't want any more negative coming forth. He said, "We let us go up. We're way able, we are well able to overcome it. And the men that went up with them said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And verse 32, they brought up an evil report upon the land that they had searched of the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we've gone to search it is a land that is eaten up will eat up the inhabitants thereof and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which were come of the giants. And we in our own sight, we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in theirs. So the congregation lifted up their voice. They began to weep and cry. And they began to, to complain about Moses bringing them out into the wilderness and on and on. And... Joshua stood up and he said, Come on, people. God promised the land and he'll give it to us. Let's not be concerned about the mountains and the giants and the problems that are there. If we're faithful to the Lord, he'll give it to us. And the people would not listen to Joshua. And so in verse 10 of chapter 14, the whole congregation said, Let's stone them. Let's kill Moses. Let's kill Joshua. Let's kill Caleb. Anybody with faith, let's kill them. And when God heard that, 
In verse 11, the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? How long will they be will they be ere that they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of thee a greater nation, mightier than they. He said, I'll wipe them out and we'll start all over again. We'll have Mosesites. And Moses interceded and said, No, Lord, don't do that. That will dishonor your glory. He wanted them to be pardoned and forgiven. And according to the word of Moses, in verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Moses said, Father, forgive them. And he did. Otherwise, they would have been destroyed. But in verse 21, he says, Truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. But because those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did, and they continue to not believe the Lord, he said, This group is not coming into the land. So they remained in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation died off, and a whole new generation grew up. A whole new generation of people that were not following the doubts and the disobedience and the uh, paganness of their fathers. And you come over to Deuteronomy chapter 32, or I'm sorry, Numbers 32, and a whole new group of people has come forth, a whole new generation. All those that complained in the wilderness died off. And now what we have is a group of people, this new group, and they're about to go in to possess the land. And before they go in, they come to an area of land that is before the land of Canaan. It's on this side, on the other side of Jordan, on their side of Jordan. And the Reubenites and the children of Gad said, hey, we want this land. It wasn't a part of the promised land per se, but, it, but they wanted that land. They saw the cattle and they saw what was there and they said, we want to go in and possess this land, and Moses says, hold it, wait a minute, before we do this, if you go in and you take that land, you're great, a great tribe, two great tribes, if we go in and you take that land, and then we cross over Jordan, and we go into the land of Canaan, if you don't go to help your brothers that are in that land, it's going to be difficult for them to get the land. So he said, he basically said to them, I'll tell you what, if you promise that when we go into the land of Jordan or go into the land of Canaan, you will send your men and they will fight and help them possess that land, then after we conquer all the land, you can come back and live with your families. If you do that, okay. But otherwise, it will not be well with you. Now, he said this in Deuteronomy 32, or Numbers 32. Why don't we keep saying Deuteronomy? Numbers 32. He said in verse 20, of number 32, Moses said, If you will do this thing, if you will go armed before the Lord of war, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out all of his enemies from before him, and the land be subdued before the Lord, then afterwards you shall return and be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before you. But if you don't, and you sin against the Lord, your sin will find you out. Well, to make a long story short, the children of Israel crossed over Jordan. They entered into the land of Canaan, and they possessed that land. They possessed it not under Moses, of course, but under Joshua. And they possessed that land, and they conquered it. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, during this period in which the children of Israel have rebelled against the Lord, and they're 40 years in the wilderness, 
and were waiting on a new generation to come forth, God made a covenant with Moses during that period. And during that time, he said to them, if you turn over to Deuteronomy 28, he gave them the Ten Commandments and he gave them laws and statutes. There were actually six, at least 600 laws that were established with the nation that they were to live by. And in this section of Deuteronomy 28, you have the blessings and the cursings, which we've read many times. And basically, it was the law of sowing and reaping that he was saying to them, if you're faithful and you serve me, I'm going to abundantly bless you in many, many ways. But if you don't, I'm going to bring a curse upon you, and you're going to lose your health, your prosperity, your property, and your well-being. All I want to do is look at Deuteronomy 28. One of the things he said to them was that if you don't serve me, this land that you're going to get, which they hadn't got yet, but this land that you're going to get, if you don't serve me, I'm going to take it away. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 61, he said, Every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law, then will the Lord bring upon thee until you're destroyed. You'll be left few in number, whereas when you were as the stars of the heaven for multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord, it'll come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, and the Lord rejoiced over the Lord will destroy you, and he will bring you to nothing, and you'll be plucked off of that land from where you go. And then he, this is the promise that I want to get to, or the, or the warning. The Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there you will serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wooden stone. And among these nations shall you find no Eve, neither shall the soul of your foot have rest, but the Lord will give thee there a trembling heart and failing eyes and sorrow of mind. And thy life will hang in doubt before thee, and thou wilt fear day and night, and thou wilt have no assurance of life. And in the morning you'll say, Would to God it were evening. And in the evening you'd say, Would to God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes with which thou shalt see. God said to Moses in his covenant that he was establishing through Moses with his people, If you serve me, you'll be blessed. But if you don't, I'm going to take you as a people. I'm going to scatter you to the four winds of the earth. I'm going to scatter you abroad. And then... Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, he spoke not in detail of this same thing, that if they didn't serve him, he would. He knew they weren't going to serve him. But what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4 was, if they didn't serve him, then he was going to scatter them abroad, and he was going to bring them into tribulation. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 26, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from off the land whether you were unto you're going over Jordan to possess it. They haven't even got it yet. He said, you're going to get it, but I'm going to tell you what, you're going to lose it. He said, the Lord will scatter you, verse 27, among the nations and you'll be left few in number and the heath, uh, among the heathen whether the Lord shall leave you. You'll serve God's the works of men's hands, wood, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if you will from then seek the Lord, 
You'll find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul when you are in tribulation and all these things that come upon me in the latter days, if you'll turn unto the Lord and be obedient unto his voice, the Lord thy God, he is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, nor destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swore unto them. He keeps talking about the covenant made unto the fathers. So this Mosaic covenant was when God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt, brought them into the land of the, brought them into the wilderness, began to deal with them there, giving them the law, telling them that if they were faithful to the law, he'd bless them, but if they weren't, they were going to be cursed, and one of the curses was that they would be scattered abroad to the four winds of the earth. Now, as you go through history, Joshua and Judges, were they faithful? No, they weren't faithful. In the last verse of the book of Joshua, uh, actually the last book of the verse of of the judges. Every man was very selfish and self-centered and did what he wanted to do and didn't care about God's word that had been presented to him. They were a people that were constantly up and down. They got the land, but then they wouldn't remain faithful to the Lord. They'd sin and God would send in a judge. Then they would uh, repent and get back with the Lord for a while. Then they'd go back their wayward ways and God would send in another judge. And this just kept going on and on and on. They were people up and down. And God was very long-suffering and very merciful. There was a breath of fresh air for a certain period. Uh, certain periods, one especially, which is what the book of Ruth is all about. Ruth was a daughter, a daughter-in-law to a woman named Naomi. She had a sister named Orpha, no, not Oprah, Orpha. And Orpha and Ruth, they were Moabites. They married a couple of boys that belonged to Naomi, and the husband, Naomi's husband, and the boys died off. And Naomi wanted to go back to Israel. She left it because of of, um, a famine, I believe. And she said to, I want to say Oprah, but it's Orpha. You know, we wouldn't even think Oprah, except, anyways, Orpha. What if Oprah's a Moabite? Anyways, that was for extra. They go back into the land, and to make a long story short, Ruth marries who? Boaz. And through that relationship comes the lineage of Jesse and Obed and David and ultimately Christ. There's a seed, there's a lineage of a family that goes through the Bible. But anyways, up comes, God raises up Samuel. Samuel goes forth. The people don't like, they're tired of Samuel. They want to be like other nations. They require and ask for a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king. They got a king, and his name was what? Saul. God told Saul, if you're faithful to serve me, I'll bless you. If you're not, I won't. Saul wasn't faithful. God anointed another. His name was David. David didn't immediately receive the throne because he had to overcome the, the trials and tests and so forth, the work of preparation God was doing with him, but ultimately he got the throne and Saul lost it. And all the people followed after David. If you look at Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, all the people followed after David. David was the king. And all the twelve tribes at that point submitted unto him. Second Samuel chapter 5. Now, Moses is... 
the promise or the condition that was made, to, the, the warning that was made to Moses about the scattering of Israel with four winds of the earth, it still hasn't happened yet. They still have the land through the, uh, through the judges and into the kings, even though God is chastening them in a variety of ways. And now David becomes king over the whole empire, and he is a king that reigns for about 40 years, and his reign really was the greatest reign of Israel. They possessed all the land under David. They never possessed it completely and fully under all the rest, but under David they had it all. And you read in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that when he took this, when he became king, all the tribes came to him and they submitted to him. So they were going to have a real united kingdom under David that they really never had before. All the tribes of Israel, then came all the tribes of Israel to David and to Hebron and saying, Behold, we are thy bone and we are thy flesh. In time past, when Saul was king over us, Thou was he that led us out, brought us in Israel, and the Lord said to thee, Thou wilt feed my people Israel. Thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders came to king, to the king in Hebron, and the king David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David, David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. You know, you look at Israel today, and man, they get a new prime minister every so often. I mean, it seems like they got a new leader Constantly, they're not a people that have are willing to really submit on, for long periods of time under one person. But anyways, here now David becomes king, and in Second Samuel seven, David wants to build a temple. The prophet Nathan comes to him and says, "No, that isn't going to work. You're a warrior, and God doesn't want a temple built for him by a warrior." He says, there will be one that, that will be used to build a temple, but it's not going to be you. And when he tells him that, he establishes a covenant and a promise with David. He says in verse 7, uh, In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I have commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not a house of cedar?" In other words, God is saying that to David. Have I ever asked that you have to that you build me a house of cedar? No, God didn't ask for it, but this is something David wanted to do. He said, Now therefore thou shalt say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from among the sheep coats, verse eight, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I was with thee whether thou wentest, and I have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight. And I've made thy name great, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, and neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord will tell thee what, what he will make of thee concerning a house. So now he's going to make a promise to David. And here's what he says. When thy days are fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now he's talking about Solomon. 
He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, the wording here gets a little tricky. He says here that from David's seed will come forth a man, and we know that to be Solomon, and he's going to build for the Lord a house. And then he says, I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he's not here talking about now is Solomon, but the throne. The throne here is really the right to rule. And what he's saying is, I'm going to establish the right to rule, the throne, from you. And then he starts talking about the future kings that are coming here in verse 14. I will be his father, he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. He's saying that these kings that are coming, I'm going to be like a father to them, they're going to be my child. If they don't serve me, I'm going to chasten them. And I'm going to use the rod of men to do it with. Verse 15, But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Saul and his lineage were cut off. He says to David, Now I'm going to establish a throne, and that's going to be a right to rule of many, many kings that are coming. And it's going to be something that will go on forever. And he says, These individuals will be like a, a son to me, and I will be their father. If they get out of line, I'm going to punish them. If they don't get on the line, I'm going to bless them. But that throne, which is, the, which is the rule of the king, is something he says that I'm going to establish through Solomon. Verse 16, he goes back to talking to David and he says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, and thy throne, thine throne, shall be established forever. There's a lineage to the throne through David that would never, ever cease. You see, Christ is not from the lineage of Solomon. If you were to trace back the genealogy, Solomon is not in that Davidic line. David had many wives. David had many children. And you, when you trace it back, Christ comes through David, but he comes through Nathan, not Solomon. The Solomon line is not in that line. And that's what he's trying to explain here. That David, what he's saying to David is, I'm going to establish a throne through you, through uh, 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 the right to rule through you. Solomon is going to build me a house. And there's going to be a lot of kings that have come forth. And I'm not chasing them with a rod of men if they get out of line. But you, David... You, if you're faithful to me, I'm going to establish through you a, a lineage of ruling that will never, ever cease. And Solomon and all these wicked kings that follow after Solomon, many of them, they're not in that line. They're not in that line. They are cut off there. The part we know with Solomon, God gives Solomon a chance. He says to Solomon, if you serve me, I'll bless you, but if you don't, I'm going to cut you off. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9. He makes a promise to Solomon. He says to him, if you're faithful to serve me, then I'm going to bless you abundantly. The problem is Solomon didn't. Solomon didn't bless him. He didn't. wasn't faithful. 
This is where now Solomon has built a house unto the Lord. First Kings chapter 9 and verse 3. It came to pass the class when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he pleased to do. This is a beautiful, beautiful temple. The temple and the city were gorgeous. I mean, they were one of the great wonders of the world. And the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me, and I have allowed this house which thou hast built to be to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. If you will walk before me as David thy father walked, in the integrity of your heart, and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and judgments, I'll establish thy throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if you turn at all from following me or your children and will not keep my commandments and statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among people. And at this house which is high, and everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this unto the land and to his house? And they shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought them forth, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and worshipped them, and served them, and therefore has the Lord brought upon them all this evil. And so we know the rest of the story with Solomon. Solomon begins to start marrying many wives. Solomon starts worshipping and serving the gods of these wives. And finally, Solomon is cut off. From Solomon, his sons come forth. Immediately after Solomon's death, a civil war starts up. Because his son, the elders of Israel, come to his son and they say, Listen, we were taxed to the hill to build all this stuff for your father. And we are tired of being oppressed. Lighten the burden and we'll serve you. But if we don't, we're going to rebel. And Solomon's son said, if you think my, that the burden of my father was heavy, that's like the little finger compared to what I'm going to lay on you, which will be as thick as my thigh. He didn't listen to the old men. He listened to young men. And he was greedy and he, he was arrogant. And he basically said, things are going to get worse. And so there was a civil war. Israel divided up into ten tribes and the tribe of Judah split off. And then you have a, a series of a variety of kings, some ruling over the northern kingdom and some ruling over Judah. But you find that there is a, a, a great division between them. During that period of, of the kings, and I'm just skimming over it, some of them served the Lord, but most of them didn't, especially the northern kingdom. They didn't serve the Lord. But the southern kingdom, some of those in Judah did. And God permitted it for a while, but then he said he was going to judge them. He sent in the Assyrians, and they conquered the ten tribes, took them away into captivity. And Judah refused to serve the Lord, and so he sent forth the prophet Jeremiah 
to warn them that they needed to repent and serve the Lord. Look at Jeremiah chapter 25. Uh, much of Jeremiah, is, if, if we had the time to look at all the prophecies that he brought forth, he was warning them and saying to them, you've got to turn back and serve the Lord. In Jeremiah 25, he told them that if they served the Lord, they, that he'd bless them, but if they didn't, then he said, I'm going to allow the king of Babylon to rise up and you're going into captivity for 70 years. In verse, well, Jeremiah 25, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. That which Jeremiah the prophet spoke unto the people of Judah and all the people, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. That which Jeremiah the prophet spoke unto the people of Judah and all the people, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is, the, that is the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord has come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but you haven't hearkened. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He kept trying to tell them to repent, turn back, and they would just treat him like dirt. They wouldn't listen to what he had to say. The Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early, sending them, but you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. And they said, Turn ye again now, everyone, from the evil of his way, from the evil of his doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given you, you and your fathers, forever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them, to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. But they hearken not unto me, saith the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will I bring him against this land and the inhabitants thereof, and against all the nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment and a hissing, a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of myrrh and gladness, and the bridegroom and the bride, the sign of millstones and the light of the candle. This whole land will become a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Of course, his prophecy wasn't popular among all the other prophets. They were prophesying prosperity and blessing. And he was the negative one. And then he says, It will come to pass when 70 years are accomplished, I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, says the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And I'll bring upon all the lands all my words which I have pronounced against it, even that are written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. So Jeremiah said, if you don't repent, the Babylonians are going to come upon you and you're going to be in captivity 70 years. Well, they did not repent. And they were conquered by the Babylonians. And there began to be groups that were pulled out of Israel and put into Babylonian captivity. They would go in different ways. Daniel was one of the early ones that left. And there was one group left. The city is still standing. The temple is still standing. 
And there's one group left. And Jeremiah, in chapter 36, goes to Zedekiah, who's the king. He says, look, if you will serve the king of Babylon, if you'll serve Nebuchadnezzar, if you'll submit to him, if you'll lay down your arms, if you'll quit trying to rebel, then God will permit the house and the city to remain. And this glorious temple that was built in this city of Jerusalem would not be destroyed. And Zedekiah refused to submit, and so therefore he said, the king of Babylon is going to come and he's going to destroy everything. In Jeremiah 36, 27, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king, after that the king had burned the roll. And I, I need to back up and explain this because this is kind of interesting. In verse chapter uh, 36, verse 1, God said, write all this down in a book, which was a scroll. It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a roll of a book, and write thereon all the words that I have spoken unto thee, and against Israel and Judah, and against all these nations, from the days that I spoke to thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto thee. And it may be that the house of Israel will hear all the evil which I purpose to do against them, and they may return every man from his evil way. Now, a lot of them had already gone into captivity, but not all of them yet. Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken, and put them in the roll of a book. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore you go and read the roll which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of the Lord, in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the day of fasting. Now to make a long story short, that's what he did. Baruch went in and he read the the words that were recorded. And as he did, many of the priests and the leaders were astonished and they wanted to repent. They wanted to take it seriously. But when it came to the king and the king began to hear what was in the roll, verse 21, the king sent Jehoiadai to fetch the roll and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. And the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai read three or four leaves, he cut it with his penknife and cast it into the fire on the hearth, and all the roll was consumed in the fire on the hearth. And yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard these words. Nevertheless, Lithan and Deliah and Gemariah made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll. These would be priests, but they would, he would not hear them. And the king commanded Jeremiah, the son of Hamalek, and Serahah, the son of Aziel, and Shemaiah, and on and on, to listen, but they would not. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll, and the words that Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, and he said, okay, I want you to sit down and do it again. And so he wrote down another one, wrote another book. And, the king of, and he said in verse 29, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying? And the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy the land which thou 
shall cause to cease from thence from man and beast. Now, to make a long story short, after that, Nebuchadnezzar came in, burned everything to the ground. Jerusalem is burned, the temple is burned, and he drug away all the people into Babylonian captivity, and now uh, is, Judah has become basically a, a nothing. And everything Jeremiah said came to pass. People would buy, walk by and look at it and say, why did God do this? So everything now has been destroyed, and here's Daniel in Babylon. Jump over to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is in Babylon. Daniel, we know, is a very uh, godly man, a man of prayer. And Daniel's over there, and he's reading of the prophecies of Jeremiah. Remember, it was rewritten. And he's reading of the prophecies of Jeremiah. And he reads in Daniel chapter 9, he's been there now in captivity. He's getting pretty old. He's been there for 67 years in captivity. And from the time that it was spoken, 67 years has gone by. And he's beginning to wonder, when, Lord, is this 70 years going to end? It's only a few years away. And he's praying about it. In Daniel chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahusuerus, of the seed of the Medes, now you see the, um, which were made king in the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord to seek with prayer and fasting and sackcloth and ashes, and I prayed unto the Lord, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, and great dreadful God, to keep with the covenant, and on and on. When is all this going to come to pass? Well, he's answered by a prophecy of 70 weeks. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of this. It's over in Daniel chapter 9. But in verse 24, he says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of the sins thereof, and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and seal up the vision of prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And these 70 periods of seven, he lays out that there's going to come forth a commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. There's going to come forth a Messiah. The Messiah will be cut off and then there's a one-week period that is left open. And that one-week, seven-week, seven-year period has not yet been fulfilled. But as you read through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra goes forth and they begin to start rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. They are under a tremendous amount of uh, opposition and persecution. Look, to, look with me real quick to the book of uh, Haggai, which is between Zephaniah and Zechariah, right toward the end of the Old Testament. They begin to start rebuilding the city and the temple with a lot of hassle. And they actually stopped for 16 years. They actually stopped building. And this is why many of the minor prophets during this period are prophesying to the people about what's going on in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Haggai is one, and he looks at the temple that was started and stopped and hadn't been touched for 16 years, and he rebukes them. He says, get back to the work. Let's get going again. He says in verse 3, 
Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your root houses, and this house lies waste? It was the rebuilding of what had been burned, and it hadn't been restored yet. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, you bring in little, you eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is nothing warm. And he that earns wages puts wages into a bag of holes. Consider your ways. He says, you're not putting the Lord first. So he rebuked them. And they proceeded after that to get back busy to building it again. And finally under Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes in. And in 52 days, under a lot of opposition, they get the job done. Jerusalem is restored. The temple's restored. Jump over to the book of Nehemiah real quick, which is before the Psalms, and look at Nehemiah chapter 11. And when I get into the book of Daniel, we talk about these 70 weeks, we'll throw some dates out. But basically, uh, from 586 B.C. to 516 B.C., when this is all completed, 70 years exactly is when when they are out. Nehemiah chapter 11, what God says after they get the city and everything done, in Nehemiah chapter 11, an edict goes forth that one-tenth of all the Israelites are to go back and inhabit Jerusalem and begin to start building houses and cities around it. And one of those cities that's built is Bethlehem. And Micah speaks of this city being built. And he says, O Bethlehem Ephratah, out from out of thee will come forth one. He talks about the coming of the Lord that will be mighty and so forth. But anyways, all that is spoken of. And this city is being built during this time when Israel is coming back. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, The rulers of the people dwell at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. The captivity is over, and they're starting to come back into the land. And one-tenth of the people are to live in Jerusalem, and the rest are to live in other cities, but they're starting to rebuild the land from all the captivity and punishment that they went through. Now, that brings us up then basically to the time of Christ. When you come up to the time of Christ, now they've come under other rule. They went from the rule of the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and Persians were probably the least oppressive of the four because they allowed the temple to be rebuilt and the city to be rebuilt. They were under rule of the Greeks and then they were under rule of the Romans. And of course, under the time period of Christ, they're still under Roman rule. And think about it. The Mosaic covenant said, if you don't serve the Lord, I'm going to scatter you to the four winds of the earth. And the covenant with David said, I'm going to establish your throne forever. A lot of things have happened. They're back in the land, but they were never scattered to the four winds of the earth. They were scattered to Babylon and the surrounding nations, but not the four winds of the earth. And on the throne is not the lineage of David. It's yet to be fulfilled. And that raises questions in the minds of the disciples because they're waiting for all this yet to come to pass. 
and they're wondering when it is. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 21, one day Jesus is walking by the temple. Y'all with me at this point? I'm not losing it, but I know it's history and I know it's doctrine, but I'm trying. I want to try to get you to see in a basic way what's happening through the Old Testament, so that you can understand when we end this what now occurs and why it's still got to come to pass. There are a lot of Christians, a lot of denominations believe that when Israel got cut off, that was it. It was done. It was over. And what's happening in Israel today is strictly political. It has absolutely nothing to do with the line of David being restored and the, uh, the, the promise or the curse made for Moses was already fulfilled in regard to Israel being scattered to Babylon. But it's not. He says all the nations of the world, the four winds of the earth, they weren't scattered to the four winds of the earth. If that was fulfilled then they would have a point that this is purely a political, unique situation of Israel getting back into their land in the 20th century. It's either that or it's a sign that prophecy is being fulfilled. And we as fundamentalist Christians believe that it's a sign of being fulfilled. Look at Luke chapter 11. Or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 21 is what I told you to turn to. In Luke 21... Jesus is walking by the temple. And he says in... Uh, oh, no, wait a minute. This isn't the verse I want. Hold on. Look at Matthew 24. He's walking by the temple. We're either, we're either going to read Matthew or Mark. There, hold on. Uh, Matthew... 24. It says, When Jesus went out and he departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, this is one that's been rebuilt by Herod. It's not the great and glamorous one that was built by Solomon, and the one that was built during Ezra and Nehemiah's time has since been replaced. And hundreds of years have gone by. And Jesus said to them, See not all these things, all the, the Herod's temple and everything that's been built. I say unto you that there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then as he sat at the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, and they asked three questions. Number one, tell us when all these things shall be, when all the temple is going to be destroyed, no no stone left upon another. Second question. What will be the sign of your coming? Third question. And tell us about the end of the world. He's got them going. He's made a statement and now they're beginning to think about what he's saying and so they're raising questions. Now, in answer to the question, the first one is, tell us when all these things shall be. Well, historically, what happened was that in 70 A.D., the Romans went in and destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, burned it again. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed, and historically it was destroyed, period. The other signs, the signs of your coming and the end of the world, he goes on and speaks to them throughout Matthew 24 and other places, 
about uh, signs of his coming, which we've already looked at. I won't get into. But now look over to Luke chapter 21. And he gives us a little bit more insight into uh, what he had said over there. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 20, he's referring now to 70 A.D., which I said already occurred. And here he's going to make some comment about it. He says, When you shall see Jerusalem, verse 20, compassed about with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. The desolation of the temple and so forth. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let them not let them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these will be the days of vengeance, that all things written may be fulfilled. Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that will give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive unto all nations. There is a fulfillment to Deuteronomy 28 with Moses. See, it had not yet occurred. They only went to Babylon and the nations around them. But now Jesus is saying here that after he is rejected, after they reject him, and now the armies of the enemies of Israel encompass the city, which is 70 A.D., now the Jews, he says, will be led away captive unto all nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until, he says here, the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled, which occurred in 1967. From 70 AD to 1967, Jerusalem was trodden down of Gentile nations all the way through. That's why this became an eye-opener to many uh, Bible-believing Christians when, in the Seven-Day War, Israel got her city back. Because up to this point, from 70 A.D. till 1967, Israel, as a nation, was scattered to the four winds of the earth. And it looked to be something impossible for her ever to become a nation again. And in 1948, due to sympathy of what was happening in World War II with Hitler and the Zionist movement that was occurring in Israel, they were gathered together and through uh, British mandates and other things, they got into their land. And I'll get into that more in detail later. But you see that this is the fulfillment, what he's saying here to Deuteronomy 28, with the Mosaic Covenant, not what occurred with the Babylon, Babylon and Assyria and Greeks and so forth, but it occurred much later. That's why this becomes now a context saying that whatever this means in regard to the, uh, the fullness of the Gentiles, which is what Paul was talking about in the book of Romans, when God's done pouring out his love and mercy upon the Gentile nation, there comes a point when he says, that's it, I'm done, and all of his attention is going to focus on Israel. I feel like we're like Daniel. We know that there are certain signs that give us certain periods of time when we know these things are going to come to pass. Like Daniel was crying out and saying, Lord, you said 70 years through the prophet Jeremiah. He'd only been 67. When is this going to come to pass? We've got certain key signs that now say, look, Israel has been given back 
to her people. When is the rest of this all going to be brought to pass? When is it going to occur? Look at Jeremiah chapter 30, and I'm going to... Well, just one more verse. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2. There are there's so many scriptures we could read, and I don't want to go so long that I lose you. But look at Acts chapter 2. God is going to save the nation of Israel. And the throne of David, keep in mind that's the right to rule, through his seed. Solomon, it didn't come through Solomon, and that seed was lost. Solomon wasn't faithful. But as you trace it back through, you'll find where that seed of David and that right to the throne, that lineage is there and it continues on through the lineage of Christ. We read in verse in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching about the crucifixion of Christ, the fulfillment to the prophecy of Joel in regard to baptism and the Holy Spirit and so forth, and he says in verse 22, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God raised him up, loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it, because he was sinless. And David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, moreover my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to, to see corruption. Verse 29, Then, and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of this patriarch David that he's both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That's that Davidic covenant. Seeing that before spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in shoal, neither did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus, as God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see in the ear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. He's, David rejoiced because he saw that the resurrection would bring Christ to put him on that throne. And he's on the throne right now. And David was looking at it as Christ on the throne in the heavenly, but it didn't stop there. He said he would be on that throne until, verse 35, I make thy foes thy footstool. And of course, this is another prophecy where Christ is going to return and he's going to make his foes his footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made the same Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now I want you to look at Jeremiah 30. David David has a promise and Moses and Abraham that the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, the throne of David is something that is going to be an everlasting, eternal blessing given by God for their faithfulness. Look at Jeremiah 31. The land belongs to Israel. The throne over all the earth 
David's throne. David's, David, through the lineage of David, he's going to rule over all the earth. That's Christ in the millennium. As well as the promise of deliverance from being scattered abroad over all the earth. And I'm going to close one verse. Jeremiah 30 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord of Israel, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, and I will cause them to return unto the land that I gave to their fathers, and they will possess it. And these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus said the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling and of fear and not of peace. Ask ye not and see whether a man doth travail with child, and wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that there is none like it. It is even a time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. And they shall serve the Lord their God, and who? David, their king, whom I will raise up unto them. The lineage of David, he says, the throne of David, would be restored. See, this one fulfilled through Ezra, Nehemiah, and all of that. This was yet. This has yet to be fulfilled. Therefore, fear them not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall be afraid of him. <clears throat> for I am thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all the nations, whether I have scattered thee. Yet will I not make a full end of thee. I will correct thee in measure, and I will not leave thee altogether unpunished. God is going to destroy and judge all the nations of the earth, and he's going to restore them back and save them. They're going to have their land. They're going to have their salvation. And they're going to have a king unto them that is going to be of the lineage of David, which is a different line that goes through. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 11, when they raise the question, has God forsaken his people? Is it over? Is it done? He says, no. He says, no, it's not over. They've not yet been scattered to the four winds of the earth. They don't yet have David as their king reigning over them, that rule, that lineage, that line. They don't have their land. See, a lot lot of Bible scholars have just written it off like the book of Revelation and end time events. But as you study the scripture, you see these three covenants have not yet been brought to pass. Abraham's land, David's lineage of king, and the restoration of the nation of Israel from being scattered to the four winds of the earth. That one is, of course, closed. But the other two are yet to come. Now, let me take what I've laid out as a foundation last week and this week, and then next week we'll summarize all that up, bringing it up to current events. But I trust you can see, like we, like Paul, that we can identify and fit our thinking into the 
fulfillment of these prophecies of the Old Testament and understand them and recognize that this is a sign of the times. Father in heaven, we thank you for blessing us with the time to be able to share these truths with everybody here. And I know that we've summarized up hundreds of years of history in just one hour, but I pray that, that the seed planted would help encourage and strengthen our faith to believe that we are in the end times and that the coming of your Son is drawing nigh and that we are to be watchful and be prepared and ready so that we're not caught off guard when he returns. You've given us the nation of Israel as a tree that has blossomed and you've told us that when we see these things come to pass, look up for our redemption draweth nigh. So I ask the Holy Spirit to work these truths into our heart that we would be prepared and ready for the coming of your Son. And I ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.